Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, good morning to our family over at Northeast and happy Mother's Day, everybody. Um, happy. That's right. You better cheer. Cheer for your mama. That's right. That's a really good thing. Um, hey, this is a really special uh, day for us. Actually, I didn't really plan it this way to be on Mother's Day, but it's a pretty cool, cool thing the way it lined up for us here at Mercy. Um, if you know our church, the heartbeat of our church, even if you're new, let me tell you, uh, one of our core values is that we send God's people to all people. We are a sending church. Uh, and you know, that means from time to time, Lord willing, we won't just send individuals. We will. We'll send individuals out onto the mission field. And as the Lord will allow us, we will also be about planting churches. Uh, in many ways, we will be a mother church that uh, gives birth to new churches all around both the country and the world. And we get to celebrate that this morning. Um, about six years ago, six and a half years ago, I uh, actually left the church, was sent out by the church that I was a pastor at to go and plant Mercy Church, right? It's about six and a half years ago. Well, there's a group of us uh, pastors that are in a network called the Summit Collaboratives, a bunch of pastors now, about 59 churches in all that are uh, a part of this that have all been sent out uh, mostly by that one church, the Summit Church, where I was a pastor at. Uh, but we have, uh, by God's grace, we get together every year and we celebrate uh, when churches plant churches. Uh, so we went this past, just a couple of weeks ago, up to our annual pastor's retreat uh, where we got to celebrate that Mercy Church is going to be planting uh, Alan Watohio, who's been on our staff for two, three years now. He is going back to plant Mercy Nairobi in his home city of Nairobi, Kenya, uh, which we are pumped about. That's right. Celebrate that. So this thing that I'm holding, they actually gave us, and it'll be hanging in our Providence Road um, hallway, is a just sort of like a big old poster. Uh, our goal is to plant a thousand churches. The goal of this collaborative is a thousand churches in our lifetime, and Alan will be planting church number 88 uh, over in Mercy, Nairobi. So it's pretty exciting. Um, and we have, it's funny, they've got one like that with Mercy on it that is uh, number like 26 or something like that. And um, y'all, this is what we're about, but I'm going to tell you it is bittersweet. So Alan will be preaching his last sermon for us um, here this morning. Now he and Malin and the family will be around for about another month and we will actually have a formal send off for them. But this is his last time bringing God's word to us. Uh, so it's, again, it's one of those bittersweet things. I love that we're having babies as a church now, all right? Um, also love all of you are having babies. Every third person, I feel like, at Mercy <laughs> is having a baby, and that's also great, and we love that. We're super excited, and we're working on our facility situation, okay? But, um, but it is a beautiful, wonderful, difficult thing uh, to be a church that commits to send its people and its resources away. It's very best 
people and resources. Alan represents the very best, and the team that he's building represents the very best of our church. That's a difficult thing to do, but we believe that it's worth it because we're going to see brothers and sisters from Nairobi when we gather around the throne one day uh, in glory. And so we, um, we believe in what Alan's doing. He's been training for a year for this, and in many ways, much longer. So um, I've talked enough. Alan, will you come one more time and bring God's word to us? All right, man. All right. So this, this thing is heavy. Uh, and here's the thing. Uh, I'm preaching from Exodus 9 uh, to 10. It's about plagues. I have no idea why. It's Mother's, uh, Mother's Day. And moms, you can blame Spence. Uh, I just picked up the text I was told to preach. So that's just what that is. Um, before, before I begin, let me, um, allow me to share a story. Uh, I remember this one time. I was supposed to bring home two cans of shoe polish. Uh, if you don't know this, I, I grew up in Nairobi, in Africa, and sometimes in Africa you send your kids to bring stuff home from school. Uh, they go grocery shopping for you, and then they bring stuff back home. And so all day long I had this money in my pocket, and, and this money was just yelling at me, screaming, spend me, all right? You know how this is when you get your first job and you get your first paycheck and you're like, I just want to spend this money. Uh, I go, you go to Ikea, halfway through Ikea, you're like, no, I got to go to Home Depot. It's like, you, you just want to spend this money. And I obliged. I spent half the money. I spent it on candy and snacks. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I had a big problem. My problem was I was, I was supposed to go home with two cans of shoe polish and I had money for one can of shoe polish. So I did what every normal person would do. I decided I would shoplift. So I went to the store, and I picked two cans of shoe polish. I put one in my backpack, and I held one in my, in my hand. My plan was to pay for the one, and then take the other one for free, okay? It's not free for the shop owner, but it was free for me. But unbeknownst to me, they had someone watching me. So I went to the cash register, I paid for the one can, and then as I tried to walk out, someone held me and they took me to a back room and I was exposed as a thief. But that wasn't the end of it. I knew this would get to my parents and I would get a whooping. And so I ran away from home, I took refuge at my grandmother's house and I thought this would smooth things over. But lo and behold, when I eventually went back home, I got what was coming to me. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I believed that my parents had some sort of authority over me. They were my parents. I believed that they did not believe in stealing. I believed that they did not want me to misuse their resources. And yet my actions did not show that. Just like me, some of us believe God is real. Like, that's why you're seated here today, this morning. That's why you are at Northeast, because you believe God is real. He has some sort of authority over everything. He is the God of creation. He is all-powerful. But sometimes there seems to be a disconnect when it comes to living like he is actually real. As we walk through Exodus 9 and 10, we are going to see this disconnect amplified. 
In our text, Pharaoh goes as far as stating that Yahweh is God, but his actions say otherwise. And this is huge because one of the main reasons why Egypt was plagued and being attacked by God was simply because Pharaoh refused to obey. He refused to obey God. The plagues are the consequences of his continued disobedience to God. So his people lost livestock. They got afflicted with boils. They were swamped by locusts. They got stuck in a darkness for three days, all because he refused to obey. Now, I do believe that we should not obey God just so that he doesn't punish us. I think we should obey God, first of all, because it's the right thing to do. He is God after all. And then I believe we should obey God because Jesus tells us to. In John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you shall keep my commandments. And we should obey God honestly because obedience leads to fulfilled life. I read a quote the other day that I thought captures this so well. It said, the fruit of the spirit grows only in the garden of obedience. So if we want to experience the love, the joy, the peace, the state of shalom with God, we've got to agree with him. Because really that's what obedience means. It's obeying God. It's agreeing with him. I know this word obey is like a curse word these days, but what it simply means is agreeing with God, agreeing with what he says about every area of life. So church, if obeying God is, our, is for our ultimate good, it is for our good that we obey God, what will keep us from that goal? Our text will show us, it will answer this question. Throughout the passage, we will see what kept Pharaoh from obeying, and I believe God has a message for us this morning. He's using Pharaoh as a sign. Do y'all pray for signs sometimes? Lord, give me a sign. Pharaoh is a sign of what not to do. So our text, our sermon title today is, What Will Keep You From Obeying the God You Already Believe In? The God You Believe In. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Exodus 9. It is the second Bible, not the second Bible, the second book in the Bible. We don't have a second Bible. It is the second book in the Bible, so it's easy to find it. Exodus chapter 9, verse 10. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're not, say, hold up. Oh, yes, let's go. So verse 1 to 7 tells a story of how Moses was sent to Pharaoh once again to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they can go worship God. But Pharaoh once again refused to let the people go. And so God brought forth a severe plague where all the livestock were killed. And then the sixth plague, recorded in verse 8 and 12, God directed Moses to throw soot toward heaven in front of Pharaoh and his magicians and all the animals. And verse, 12, and, and verse 11 tells us the magicians could not stand before Moses because of all the boils. For the boils were on the magicians as well as all the people. His magicians were exposed by God as fraud. They could not stand in front of this real power. They could not replicate this plague. And what we see here is Pharaoh's pride. We see Pharaoh's pride because he has this audacity to to not submit, to, to refuse to submit to the God of Moses who is unlike any other God. 
His judgment is so precise. Why do I say that? Because the Egyptians' livestock died while the Israelites' livestock did not die. He is so precise. And yet, verse 7 tells us that Pharaoh sent messengers to go check it out. His pride could not let him believe that God would actually do what he said he would do. Up to this point, Pharaoh had continued to harden his own heart. He had continued to choose his own way over God's way. Look with me at verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to him as the Lord had told Moses. I know that this is one of the hard things to understand about the Bible, and sometimes I wrestle with it. People often accuse God of being cruel. They accuse him of being cruel because they argue the Pharaoh had no choice but to disobey God because it was God who hardened his heart. But here's the thing. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was the natural result of Pharaoh rejecting God. Because of Pharaoh's continued pride and rebellion, God gave him exactly what he wanted. Here's the thing. God will not force anyone to obey him. He will not force you to obey him. But in James 4, 8, he tells us if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. By the time we get to the seventh plague, God had some tough words for Pharaoh. If you look with me at verse 14, this is God speaking. He says, this time I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials, and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me in all the earth. By now, I would have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. Now, parents, moms, uh, you know, this is like when your child is talking back at you, and you're like, do you understand who you're talking to right now? I brought you in here. I can take you out. <laughs> Verse 16, however, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. I love that even in the middle of this divine scolding, God's mind was still on the salvation of all nations. God says he was letting Pharaoh live so that he can show his power and to make his, known, his name known to the whole of the world. And then verse 17 says, you are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. And this leads us to our first observation. Pride will keep you from obeying the God you believe in. Now, this word pride means to have an improper or, 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 or exercise uh, uh, self an, ex an improper and excessive self-esteem, also known as conceit or arrogance. And that's exactly what God says about Pharaoh. He literally says in verse 17, you are still acting arrogantly. Remember, Pharaoh had seen the power of God on display. His livestock got killed. His people got, like everybody in that town had boils. He saw this, but yet he was proud. It is prideful of Pharaoh to fail to obey God who seems to be all-powerful and precise in his judgment. Just imagine you woke up and half your, like half your house, if you live in a house with many people, half your house had boils, but half your house did not have boils. 
you would think you would obey the God who gave half your people boils, right? Now his entire nation was afflicted. Their livestock died. They had boils. There's a preciseness of God's judgment, but he is so prideful. Now the opposite of pride is humility. Having reverential fear of God, which, which, which leads us which leads to obedience. Verse 20 tells us that those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. They did this because they feared the word of the Lord. They did not want to be caught up in the hail that was coming. Now, it's easy for us this morning to look and see Pharaoh's pride and recognize it and fail to see our own pride. So allow me to show you just three symptoms of pride. Just three of them. It's not exhaustive, I just went three. It could have been like 20, but just three. The first symptom is entitlement. If you start believing you deserve the praises of people, you deserve success, you deserve more than you have because after all, you are you. And pain and discomfort makes you frustrated with God. You start forgetting that the only thing you and I deserve is death. Romans 6.23 tells us that. Another symptom is prayerlessness. You see, God invites us to bring all our burdens, to bring him all our requests in prayer, and then we conclude that we can do life on our own terms, believe the lie that we are self-sufficient, self-reliant, and refuse to pray or even push prayer to the side. We don't need God. I can do this by myself. That is a symptom of pride. A third one is fear. Now, ultimately, we become prone to fear, because we don't have faith in God. It's like Peter in Matthew 14, when Jesus called him to walk on water, he stepped out and he started walking on water. But as soon as he had his eyes on his circumstances instead of his eyes on the Lord, what happened? He started sinking. I will contend that fear stems from pride because it's born from our preoccupation, listen to this, with our lack of control. We are preoccupied with our lack of control instead of keeping our eyes on the one who is fully in control. And so we get fear. When Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, some of us say, Jesus, let me sit here and worry about what I cannot fix. When he says, come to me. Because of Pharaoh's arrogance, God sent the seventh plague, and this time around, it was a storm that had never been felt in Egypt. Y'all, we don't have storms like these in Kenya, so the, like y'all have in the States. So I remember living in Texas, and there was like this tornado warning, and so me, my wife, and two kids, we are in the bathtub, and I'm like, I just want to go home now. I've never <laughs> experienced this. Like, I don't want this. Verse 23, the Lord sent thunder and hail. Lightning struck the land, and the Lord rained hail on the, earth, on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had ever occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. The only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. 
I have sinned this time, he said to them. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. Notice what Pharaoh says. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to Moses and said, I am. This is my name, Yahweh. He said, the Lord is the righteous one. He's recognizing that God is God. And then he says, I and my people are guilty. It sounds like Pharaoh just said the prayer. Pharaoh just walked the aisle. Pharaoh just got saved. But did he? He correctly identified that the God of Moses was a true God and that he and his people were guilty before this God. But here is the thing, just mouthing off religious words is not sufficient for salvation. Pharaoh says all the right things, but his heart has not been transformed. His words are not evidence of repentance. We know this because in verse 34, it tells us that as soon as the hail and thunder ceased, he refused to let the people go. Now, here's the thing. God will always hear and answer the genuine prayer of repentance. But he can see through false repentance. You see, repentance produces change. But remorse just produces sorrow with no change. Unbelief will keep you from obeying the God you believe in. That is what this is teaching us. Some of you believe that God of the Bible is a true God. You believe that you are guilty before this God. That Jesus lived a sinless life, was crucified on the cross on your behalf. And on the third day, he rose up from the grave. And if you repent and believe in Jesus alone, your sins will be forgiven. And you will be reconciled with God. And you will enjoy the abundant life that he promises right now and lasting forever in the presence of God. You believe that. You know those facts. You can recite those. You've been to enough Bible studies and yet you haven't placed your faith in Jesus. Let me try to illustrate this. You came in this room. In Northeast, you came into that room. If you're watching this online... You went to your living room and you looked at the seat in front of you and you have the facts that that seat can hold you up. You knew that. You believed it. But upon you sitting on that seat, you exercised faith. And what, what, what is going on right now? You are enjoying the fruits of your faith. The seat is holding you up. So what's keeping you from enjoying the fruits of believing in Jesus Christ? Why won't you sit, rest, and know that he is Lord? Why won't you come to him? Chapter 9 ends in an all-familiar way. Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go. And now, we have seen this cycle over and over again. So what is coming up? A plague. You can say it. A plague. <laughs> and this time around, God sends locusts. Look at me, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. And the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. And so that you may tell your son and grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them. And you will know that I am the Lord. 
As much as God wants Pharaoh to know that he alone is God, and also wants, he also wants Moses and the children of Israel to tell their children and their grandchildren about the story of God and how they fit into that story. And we are part of that story. That's why here at Mercy, we take seriously like our kids' ministry and our students' ministry, but parents, just come close, just hear me out. You are your children's primary spiritual guides. God is using you so that the next generation may know him, may adore him, may love him, may treasure him. He is using you. He is inviting you in, into that story. You've heard Pastor Spence say this before, but do your children even know your salvation story? Have you shared with them how Christ redeemed you, moved you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light where you have found redemption and forgiveness of sins? He's given you that as something to use for the next generation. Shameless plug, talk to Brett, the student camp, parents, sign up. All right, let's continue. Look with me at verse 8. This is after Moses had delivered God's message And Pharaoh's own people had begged him to get the Israelites out of Egypt. And this is what Pharaoh says. Go worship the Lord your God, Pharaoh said. But exactly who will be going? Moses replied, we will go with our young and with our old. We will go with our sons and with our daughters, with our flock and with our hearts. Because we must hold the Lord's festival. Listen to this. He said to them, this is Pharaoh. The Lord would have to be with you if I would ever let you and your families go. Are you for real? Like, you haven't seen that God is with these people? Look out. Oh, this is so prideful. Listen, you are heading for trouble. Pharaoh is telling Moses that he is heading for trouble. Pharaoh is in trouble. No, go just able-bodied men, worship the Lord since that's what you want. This is what is going on. Pharaoh has what we can call half-hearted obedience. He is beginning with God, trying to manipulate God. But, but partial obedience is disobedience. Parents, you know this, like you, you tell your kids, it's time to, to, go, to go to bed. This happens in my house. We have three kids, six, uh, five, and two, so it's a crazy house. And, and you tell them, go get ready for bed, and they just brush their teeth like one brush a minute. Like, uh, uh. And you know very well that this half-hearted obedience is not obedience. So partial obedience will keep you from obeying the God you believe in. And through all this text, we have seen Pharaoh minimizing and qualifying his total disregard of God's instructions with statements like, I have sinned this time. This time, Pharaoh? That's what you said last time. Every single time. And as soon as Moses intercedes for him, he goes back to his unrepentant self. Do you ever begin with God? Let's start with an easy one. Like, God, I'll give you my Sunday, but you know, the rest of the week is mine. Oh, you know, God, I will make sure I do not do those big sins. But, you know, gossip and harboring bitterness, that's, that's small, God. I can do that. And I think the greatest danger of partial obedience is how it slowly erodes our fear of God. It also erodes our view of the holiness 
of God. And soon enough, God becomes a God made in our own image. Listen to me. If it feels like God agrees with everything you do, God agrees with everything you say 100% all of the time, it could be that you're partially obeying him. You know those people who always have an excuse for why they had to do this thing that is clearly not the thing in the Bible? It's like, I, fe- I felt it. It's, it was God. I felt it. He spoke to me. You know, that was, the sound. That was a word. It's like, no, there was no word. You're disobeying. <laughs> and God sent in the locusts. And like clockwork, Pharaoh came back and asked Moses to intercede for him. And in verse 18, it says, Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. Then the Lord, the Bible is just something else. Just look at this. Then the Lord changed the wind to a strong west wind and it carried off the locust and blew them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. What? Like, the God of the Bible is unlike any other, any other God. His power is so precise, it is so unique. When I read this, I remembered the story of Jesus in Mark 4. Where he was, he was just snuggling, just sleeping in the, back of, in the, in the bottom of the, of the boat. And the disciples were like, you don't care that we're going to perish. And he, he comes out and he says, okay, storm, be still. Stop that, I'm trying to take my nap. That is God. He has the power to change the direction of the wind. He has the power to change the direction of your heart and your mind. He has, who have you been praying for? He has the power to change them from inside. This God is different. He's not an idol. He's all powerful. But oh no, Pharaoh's pride runs deep. He continued to harden his heart and refused to set the people free. So God sent in the ninth plague. This time around, it was darkness that could be felt for three days. The Egyptians did not move. They did not go anywhere for three days. Yet the Israelites, they had light. You know, there's no greater picture of judgment than darkness. In fact, in Matthew 8, Jesus says that those who refuse the good news will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But here's the good news. Psalm 139 says, it tells us that darkness is not dark. God. In fact, darkness is as light to him. When we experience darkness, we must remember that we serve a God who is light itself. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Everyone who follows me will never work in darkness, but will have light of life, the light of life. And upon being warned about this coming darkness, Pharaoh decided to isolate himself. He chased Moses away and even threatened him. If you're still with me, look at verse 8. Is it verse verse 28? Pharaoh said to him, leave me. Make sure you never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you will die. As you have said, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. And we will see that 
later on as we, finish, as, as, as we continue in the series. The last thing that will keep you from obeying the God you believe in is isolation. Pushing the word of God away. Pushing truth away. Pushing community away. Refusing to be held accountable with, 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 will eventually lead you towards disobeying the God that you believe in. You see, Moses was delivering the message of God to Pharaoh. And if Pharaoh had heeded the message, I believe the Egyptians would have not faced the plagues. Why do I know this? Because when Jonah went to the king of Nineveh and delivered the message of God, the king heeded the message and they repented and thousands of people were saved. He refused to heed, to welcome godly counsel. And he drove Moses away. He kicked him out. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, but not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you know that you cannot be provoked into love and good works by fellow Christians and brothers if you push them away? When their godly counsel messes with your pride and you decide to push them away, they can't provoke you into good works. My encouragement to you is that that seemingly painful accountability is a tool that God is using for you to obey him so you can flourish. Now, as we conclude, I don't want you to hear me say try harder. I don't want you to hear me say try harder, be perfect. As Christians, we should Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have been called, but we do not do this out of our own strength. The God who saved us is the one who's going to bring this work into completion. He's the one who works to will for his own good pleasure. And so that means, or be encouraged, because Christ obeyed perfectly. Romans 5.19 tells us, For just as, though one man, just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many, will, the many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ being fully man, fully God, fulfilled God's law. He was tempted by sin, but he did not sin. And even at his death, he said, Not my will, but your will be done. What the law of God demands from every human being has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ on the cross. That is good news. It means there is now no hostility between God and those who accept salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, a new has come. In verse 20, it says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. That means obedience is possible. We're not victims. Do you think that God saved you when you were sinful and now he's going to leave you alone and you're not going to be able to please him? If he loved you in your sin and your deadness, how about now that you're with him, clothed in union with him? And he has given us his Holy Spirit that lives and is active in us. And we have the word of God. And that means we will increasingly have an appetite for that which pleases God and a growing distaste for what does not please him. So my encouragement to you comes from Romans 12 Present your bodies as living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is our true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And when you fall short, and you will, how many of you sitting in here? Just me? Okay, just me, okay. When you fall short, and you will, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you all of your sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Did you notice that every time Pharaoh would pretend to repent, God would relent? How about you who is clothed in Christ? If you haven't accepted salvation, please do not harden your heart. Even in this morning, at this moment, Christ is still patient with you. He still loves you. He still wants to make you his child. He took your place. And so if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Just last week, a lady seated right there where you're seated. And she accepted salvation. I believe it can happen today. I can believe it can happen at lunchtime. Do not harden your heart. He is faithful. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not left us alone, that you've given us your Holy Spirit. That in our desire to please you, we don't do it out of our own works, but because you have already done the work. We thank you this morning for blessing us with wonderful mothers, and we thank you for all the women who desire to be mothers. Father, we pray that you would strengthen them as they seek to obey you in their role as those who nurture us and show us a side of you that no one else in the world can. Father, thank you for all the gifts you've given us. We praise you this morning. Help us to be not just hearers of your word, but also hearers of your word. Slow us down so we can listen. You're gracious and you're good. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now today and forevermore. Amen.